Hello and welcome to the ENJ podcast. My name is Simon Cowley and today I'm going to be taking you through the highlights of December in the journal. Now, we've got the highlights printed in the journal under the primary survey title and this month it's been put together by Mary Doward, who's one of our associate editors working in London at Imperial College. So what has she picked out for us that we need to focus on this month? Because there's quite a lot in the journal actually in December. So the first one is, well, probably not starting on the happiest of notes, it's about palliative care in the emergency department. And really starting off with heart failure. Um, Heart failure is an interesting one. It's common presentation to the ED and it is associated with a very high morbidity and mortality. But this is a a patient group that has quite a poor quality of life and would probably benefit from early palliative care, but it's not often considered in the ED for various reasons, unlike the way that we do for, say, somebody who comes in with metastatic disease. So very interesting to read a study by Lewinsky and colleagues from Canada. Um, They look to evaluate the use of palliative care services in patients with heart failure presenting to the ED. And the primary outcome studied was whether there was palliative care involvement. Secondary outcomes were things like one-year mortality, ED visits, hospital admissions, and heart failure clinic involvement. So they conducted a health record review, 500 heart failure patients who presented to two um, large Canadian academic hospital EDs, and unsurprisingly, they found that few heart failure patients had palliative care. Additionally, the majority of those that had palliative care did not really meet the current recommendations for early palliative care involvement in heart failure, which is a bit disappointing, really. So the authors suggest that the ED may be an appropriate setting to identify and refer these high-risk heart failure patients who could benefit from early palliative care. And although it is a relatively small study, it's only two hospitals in Canada, it's pretty thought-provoking really. And it's well worth a read as it raises questions about what the function of emergency care will be in the future. And there's little doubt really that with increasing longevity and more effective management of many chronic diseases, we're are all seeing, I think, a greater need for an understanding of how we can deliver palliative care knowledge and skills in the ED. And as clinicians, I think we need to engage more with the specialty. There's a lot we can learn from them. And I think particularly extending it beyond what we've traditionally thought as palliative care almost being considered as a as a cancer treatment. It's palliative care is much wider than that. And I think heart failure is a good example of where we might do better. So read that, um, have a look at it. And then what else do we want to do? We want to look at more on palliative care. So there's also a very good commentary that goes alongside the Lewinsky paper um, by Eric Adler from the USA, um, who acknowledges that the need for palliative care in patients and suggests possible reasons why so few benefits. It's a bit sad. But um, perhaps more potently to us, the ED clinicians, he discusses the challenges in terms of time and resource needed in, in initiation of that palliative care. And discussions around the pressurised environment that is most emergency departments proposes some subtle solutions. So I think most of us will identify this. I think the time issue is a big one because it's it's sometimes tricky as an emergency physician to spend large amounts of time with small numbers of people when you've constantly got a queue out the door. And I think how we work with our colleagues in palliative care and other specialist services and other professions, I think, is very important here. Right. It's also pretty good to see this month a number of papers on pre-hospital care and uh, looking at paramedic diagnostic skills. First paper looks at paramedics who are involved in the assessment, treatments and diagnosing patients, which they do on a daily basis. They use diagnostic tools such as ECGs, blood glucose tests, looking at immediate treatment and transportation decisions. And and accurate diagnosis is probably important in life-threatening and time-dependent conditions, but it's also relevant for non-life-threatening conditions, especially where it may be more appropriate to see and treat 
direct patients towards alternative healthcare providers or alternative destinations. So Wilson et al. in this month's journal have looked in the UK, um, done a systematic review of the published literature to provide an overview of how accurately paramedics diagnose patients compared with hospital doctors. So it's a bit complicated statistically. It's a bivariate meta-analysis was incorporated to examine the range of diagnostic sensitivity and specificity. And they've got 11 papers to, to look at. Review of the literature is interesting. It suggests that diagnoses made by paramedics have a high sensitivity and a higher specificity. However, and this is also always a problem with, with papers of this type, the paucity and varying quality of the studies really means that we're not entirely certain of the, the value of that finding, really. And they really do call for more papers around pre-hospital diagnostic accuracy and particularly in the field of non-life-threatening conditions. So the, what else can we take away from this? It probably means that in certainly in the study patients and you know there could have been a Hawthorne effect but we should definitely listen to the paramedics but we should do that anyway shouldn't we? We should listen to what they say. There's a well wealth of information that they can bring to the emergency department and help us with our own decision making. Next, we're going to have a look at some more pre-hospital stuff. So um, pre-drawn medications commonly used in um, pre-hospital care. Um, the range of medications used in pre-hospital medicine is probably smaller than that we choose in the ED, but they often are high-risk medications. So things like uh, anaesthetic drugs, um, etc. And the preparation, it takes time and it requires attention to detail. And obviously the potential for error in a resuscitation or an emergency scenario is pretty high. So in one HEMS and two road hospital services in Australia, um, using physician paramedic pre-hospital medical teams, they mitigate errors by pre-drawing commonly used medications to set concentrations on a daily basis. But to date, it's not known if such practice is really microbiologically safe, although I've seen it been done for, gosh, 20 years. So it was a little bit intriguing to read a study by Soiland et al. sampling and performing microbiological cultures of these pre-drawn medications used by these hospital services. So convenient sample. 299 pre-drawn medication syringes with syringe dwell times of up to 48 hours and they're collected at the end of their um, sort of operational deployment and the pre-drawn medication syringes were collected for culture were ketamine midazolam fentanyl thio rock sucks matraminol and normal saline so pretty much you know the the resuscitation drugs you want to be using quickly and uh, not have to have an excessive cognitive load in, in making them up in a high-risk situation so they got the samples they incubated and cultured them um, in the pathology laboratory using best practice and well what can you say none of the 299 samples yielded any significant microorganisms one sample of sucks with a syringe dwell time of 34 hours grow bacillus cereus but it was probably a contaminant introduced during um, sample collection. So the conclusion is, and this will make a lot of HEMS doctors happy, I'm sure, is that pre-drawing of, the, of these syringes anyway in this setting um, didn't really cause a major problem with microbiological safety up to 48 hours. And yeah, why not? We should um, probably do this more. And I think it's something which is actually coming out of pre-hospital care into ED practice. And we're certainly looking at more and more pre-drawn syringes for several high-risk uh, medications such as insulin and adrenaline. What next? Let's have a look at HEMS provision across Europe. So it's, well, it's recognised now as um, increasingly a robust and common way of transporting sick and injured patients to appropriate specialist care. And we would expect, I suppose, that most Western health economies would have them, but it's not really the case. 
So in order to inform further development of emergency care systems, Jones et al. from Scotland undertook a study to evaluate the variations in HEMS provision across Europe. Survey included primary HEMS in the 32 countries of the European Economic Area and Switzerland, and HEMS provision was calculated as helicopters per million population and per thousand kilometres squared area by day and night and by 10 billion US dollars of gross domestic product for each country. So what they did is they found large variation in the number of helicopters available for emergency care. The smallest and poorest countries had no dedicated HEMS provision. Luxembourg had the highest number of helicopters by area and population day and night, but it is a small place. Alpine countries had high daytime HEMS country coverage, and Scandinavia had good nighttime coverage. Interesting. Most helicopters carried a doctor, and I think that's probably the model that most people are aspiring now. Um, and the funding... Funding varies enormously, um, doesn't really appear to relate to the availability of helicopter emergency medicine services. But it's reassuring to know that the Alpine region is well covered, especially if you're considering a holiday up there skiing, mountaineering this winter. But it doesn't seem equitable across Europe as a whole. Um, it's not in the, in this, but if you look across in the US, there's some really interesting stuff there about where the helicopters are distributed on a fee-paying basis versus where they're needed from a event basis. They don't match up. Um, Mike Abernathy, if you follow him on Twitter, has got some really interesting and, and good data on this. So HEMS is an interesting one. It needs to be both where it's needed and where it can be afforded. And that's not necessarily always the same place. Anyway, so that's December. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas and we'll be back in January to do more on the podcast. Enjoy your emergency medicine. Have a lovely time.